to Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year, a weekly devotional series based on readings relevant to the current liturgical season. You can watch this series live on our YouTube page every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for tuning in, and now on to this week's discussion. Welcome. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Everything is Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year. My name is William Green, and as always, I'm joined by Pastor Brian King. We're here today to look at one of the readings for the third Sunday after Epiphany. And we're actually going to look at the Old Testament reading tonight, which we don't do very often. No, um, it's it's a bit easier and we're more used to the New Testament readings and they kind of, as long as it seems though the Old Testament readings are, oh shoot, we got to find something that matches the gospel and the epistle for that Sunday. Yeah. And and it's it's usually not the primary reading. Normally, the gospel reading is, and then the other ones sort of trail behind. Yeah, yeah. But this one actually fits really well for Epiphany. It does, uh, perhaps even more so than a lot of the others. So we thought we would take an occasion to look at the Old Testament reading, which is Jonah chapter three, verses one through five, and then also verse ten. But we're going to read verses one through ten. Yeah, make it keep the context going. I know that um, for the sake of brevity, often sections of these readings are taken out and things are chopped up a bit mm-hmm. and some as you have to, I mean, yeah. they, they get too long, but this one uh, I think adds something to what we're going to say. So starting with verse one of Jonah chapter three, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it. The message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I'm sorry. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here ends our reading. Great. Thank you, Pastor. We we mentioned that this was an appropriate reading for Epiphany, and it might not be immediately clear why that is. So, uh, Pastor, do you want to say a few words about why this is a good text for this coming Sunday? Because prophets going to non-Israelite people. Jewish right. people right. going outside the bounds of the kingdom. And that's, and that in essence is the major theme of, or the, the biggest theme in the epiphany season is that God is for all. Right. For all nations. Right. Yeah. And this is something uh, we don't often think about with regard to the, the Jonah narrative. At least I don't. Um, a few weeks ago, we were trying to mention and think of some of the old Testament Gentile believers, but in this case, you actually have like a whole, 
group of them, right? The Ninevites, in some sense, all, at least perhaps the majority of the city became uh, believers of some sense because they repented of their sin. And it says they believed God, right? Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to actually look at that point. Were they believers or were they just sorry for what they'd done type of thing? And and that's going to come up a little bit later, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting question. But yeah. So um, when we talk about the appropriateness of this reading for Epiphany, that seems to be why this text was chosen is because this is another instance in the Old Testament where God was revealed in some way to Gentiles and not just to the Jews. Right. So, and bear in mind that God chose his people um, for a purpose. He loved them. He cared for them. He protected them. And the purpose was to birth Jesus. Mm-hmm. But then remember that Jesus is the savior of the whole world. Right. So obviously God loves all people of all time. And here's an example of God reaching out to people outside of that family of Abraham. Right. Right. And that's probably not a thought I would have immediately had when reading this, but it's interesting uh, you and I often go through some of the church father commentaries and the ancient Christian commentaries on scripture. And several of the church fathers picked up on this theme of God revealing himself to the Gentiles in the book of Jonah. Yeah. And so um, I have one of them here. If you want me to to read that Augustine had some good insights on how this fits with not only God revealing himself to the Gentiles, but also later on, uh, how Jonah is a parallel and a type of uh, Christ, right? Yeah, that, uh, that's a good quote if you want to read that now, and then we'll jump into some of the history. Go ahead. Sure. So Augustine says, Why then are we asked what was prefigured by the prophet being swallowed by that monster and restored alive on the third day? Christ explained it when he said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and a sign shall not be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was in the whale's belly for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So then, as Jonah went from the ship into the belly of the whale, so Christ went from the tree into the tomb or into the abyss of death. And as Jonah was sacrificed for those endangered by the storm, so Christ was offered for those who are drowning in the storm of this world. And as Jonah was first commanded to preach to the Ninevites, but his prophecy did not come to them until after the whale had vomited him out. So the prophecy made to the Gentiles did not come to them until after the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. That whole link of the fish in the tomb and everything is quite, quite fascinating. Yeah, it is. And that adds another element and kind of parallel to epiphany. So we, we do have, uh, as we mentioned, I think last week or two weeks ago, uh, Christ revealed to the Gentiles, in a more significant way after Christ uh, became incarnate, right? right? Here you have uh, Jonah, this kind of type of Christ. And here uh, you have God revealed to the Ninevites in a more concrete way, only after this whole ordeal had happened to, to Jonah. And so you have this parallel of Jonah and Jesus that, that fit really well uh, with regards to um, being revealed to the Gentiles uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection after Jonah was um, spit out by the whale. Yeah, both. After both those events, there's a revelation of the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, it just, and that just hooks in with Epiphany really well. Yep. Yep. Okay, great. Um, now, before we go any farther, it might be helpful to talk about some historical context to the book of Jonah. We're assuming that, uh, 
most of our listeners are familiar with the with Jonah's story. Well, you know, it's interesting. Right. One of the commentaries I was reading talked about the fact that um, pretty much everybody knows the Jonah story. Yeah. Even to the point, you know, where people will make jokes about Jonah or a fish or whatever that, you know, even people who never go to church, they still know this, this story. It's right. And, and so that same commentator said, this is probably the best, one of the best known old Testament accounts. Yeah, that's true. Yep. And I, you know, I use the word story and I used that once in a Bible study. And someone said, well, you're, you're calling it a story. Does that mean it's not true? And it wasn't about this it was something else. I said, well, no, I, I can tell you the story about um, going into town today. Right. It doesn't mean it's not true. Right. So a narrative, an account, a narrative account, a story um, can be a true story. Right. And that's an important distinction to make in this context, because I know a lot of Christians who don't think this is like a literal historical account. Right. There's yeah. a tendency to say that this is like some sort of fish terrible. Story. Yeah. Yeah. Fish story. Right. Fish. Right. Yeah. They, they say it's a parable or a, an analogy or something. But what's fascinating is, and you know, we can we can read that section now since it sort of answers the question. Uh, in Matthew 12, what Augustine quoted part of, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now we're going to get back to verse 41 in a bit, but this whole idea of, is this an untrue story? Is it a fictional story? I, if Jesus used it as an example of himself or a type of himself, are we to say, oh, well, he's saying, no, he's not going to rise from the dead. Right. Right. And yeah, yeah, we have to say, I think this is a, a true historical narrative because there are people who try to do the same thing with Jesus' resurrection as well. Right? Exactly. You, you see some Christians in more liberal denominations wanting to spiritualize Jesus' resurrection to where he didn't actually rise from the dead. It was a sort of spiritual rising, right? Yeah. Whatever that means. Whatever that and so means. we want to avoid that error in both of these instances, obviously. Right. And especially then if Jesus says, well, this is the proof you get, the same as Jonah's, he's saying it's true. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Right. Okay. A little historic background, historical background. Uh, I'm just going to read a bit from, from an old book uh, that I've had for over 40 years. The cover's literally falling off of it. Uh, but it's Haley's Bible Handbook. And people might not be familiar with this. It's a very old, it's about done like 80 years or so ago. Okay. I, I think 18... I mean, 1930-ish, something like that. Uh, it's fairly old, but it, it gives little introductions to um, books of the Bible and explanations of archaeological things and historical things. And it's still available today, and I heartily recommend it. I've used it you know, for literally decades. So here, I'm just going to read a bit from Haley's Bible Handbook on, on Jonah. Now, a lot of our study Bibles, like the Concordia Self-Study Bible, has similar introductory information at the beginning of each book. Mm -hmm. And that's also a great resource, and hopefully people take advantage of that. So, an errand of mercy to Nineveh. Nineveh was capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was a world empire for about 300 years, 900 to 607 BC. 
It began its rise to world power about the time of the division of the Hebrew kingdom at the close of Solomon's reign. It gradually absorbed and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. The Syrian kings who had, um, they had a lot to do. There's nine kings listed that had to deal with this Assyrian empire. Thus, Jonah was called of God to prophesy the life of the enemy nation, which was already in the process of exterminating his own nation. So Jonah's preaching in the 700s, mm-hmm. uh, a bit before 722 BC, that was the fall of Samaria. So he's preaching to the nation that's destroying his people mm. in the process of moving in. It would sort of be like a Polish person being sent to Nazi Germany at the end of 1938 or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, just this, and and how are you going to feel about that? Do you want to go? And so um, it's just, uh, it's it's a really weird, weird thing. No wonder he fled in the opposite direction. In patriotic dread, which brutal and relentless military machine, which was closing in on God's people. So Jonah was a native of gath Hefer. He lived in the reign of Jeroboam II and helped to recover some of Israel's lost territory. Thus, Jonah was a famous statesman as well as prophet. So he had been involved in some other things as well. That's the background. So imagine this, and hence his hesitancy. You want to go preach the people who are trying to wipe you off the face of the earth? Right. No. Right. Why would you why would you want to go preach to them? Yeah. That also explains his reaction after they re- repented and God relented, right? Yeah. Because he wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> right? No, he wasn't. Which is fascinating for you know a believer to, oh, I don't want those people to believe in you, God. Yeah, I know. I yeah. don't want them to be forgiven, God. Yeah. But you yeah. know what? You see similar attitudes when people who you know own up a very public figure perhaps um, like a serial killer or something like that does convert to Christianity, like especially later on in life, you see yeah. those, those sorts of attitudes, like, especially if that someone is like hurt someone you care about deeply. Oh. Right. Yeah. Like, well, I don't want that person to be able to come to heaven. He, he doesn't deserve to be there. And you do kind of get these sorts of like merit based ideas uh, coming into um, our views of, of salvation in that regard of thinking that s- someone doesn't deserve uh, to, to be saved ultimately. But of course we need to remember that that's, we're all in that boat, right? Yeah. That, yeah. You say merit-based. Yeah. We judge, we judge people in, in a way. And we, we, we look at people and think, well, they, they would never go to heaven. And of course you hear the phrase when someone nice dies, well, they have to be in heaven. They were such a nice person. Mm-hmm. Our whole natural theology is a merit-based uh, entry to heaven or non-entry to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. think about the enemies of your nation. Well, you want them all to go to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Just your natural response. Yeah. Yep. So I guess on some level we can understand Jonah's human response to this, but. Yeah. Well. It's, it's a little, yeah. He's the, he's the reluctant, reluctant prophet. Right. Right. Well, good. That gives us some important uh, political background, I think to kind of, set the stage here. Um, so let's, I guess, get into the text. Um, well, I guess one more general question, and this might seem, I guess, kind of silly, but so would we truly regard the Ninevites as old Testament Gentile believers? Cause it, it, there's kind of one reading of this text where it seems like, um, there's not so much of a, a faith element 
um, at least that part seems to be underemphasized. The emphasis seems to be more on them kind of turning away from their evil deeds that they were committing. And so you might have someone say that, okay, these weren't, um, you know, Old Testament believers in the sense that they were somehow trusting in God here, right? They, they just kind of stopped committing the egregious sins that they were committing. And so that kind of convinced God to not destroy them imminently like he was going to do, right? Yeah, that that's an interesting thing. Did, did their non-destruction come about because of a change in behavior or a change in heart? Right. And that's the big question. And I think that I think the Matthew 12 section answers that question. Okay. Um, so just Matthew 12 was, you know, some of the scribes and Pharisees, etc. And then Jesus talks about only the sign of Jonah. But verse 41 says, and this is Jesus speaking, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So if the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment, then obviously they're they're in God's family. Right. Okay, yeah. That's yeah. just a straight answer. Yeah. It looks okay, they changed behavior. They they even they even made the 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 beasts and the and the flocks and the herds not eat and drink. So they were trying to get their animals to repent too. I mean <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's almost you know, but see, it's interesting. We don't think this way so much anymore. But so much of behavior in the Old Testament, not just of our Old Testament friends, but of these Old Testament friends who were outside of the pale of the Israelite nation, mm-hmm. things were done more corporately. Mm-hmm. The nation repented. Right. You know, it, 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 it talks that way. And God was dealing with nations. Right. And here he dealt with a city of 120,000. Right. As a group. Yeah. Which is is different, so you know, not to judge, but yeah, there were probably people in there who who rejected God anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe they all did, but it's it's a group action. But obviously, some of them came to faith because they're going to rise up in judgment against that generation. Of right. Jesus time. right. But it's just weird the way God dealt with groups of people in a corporate way, mm-hmm. and and in the New Testament era, it was more scattered and more individual. I won't say individualistic. It was more individual. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. But always we, personal. Faith is always a personal thing. Right. So even if the group is behaving a certain way, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that every individual within that group is behaving or thinking or feeling or believing that same way. Right. Right. Yeah. And that, that's kind of one of the things that led me to ask this question is because there does seem to be a difference between like true faith and a sort of like corporate uh, national level repentance like we see in Nineveh. And of course we want to maintain that distinction, but like you said, in the verse that you just read, there does seem to be an indication that at least some of these Ninevites um, ultimately came to a, a true saving faith. And I, I think a pretty Matthew. big group of them the men of Nineveh yeah yeah it's 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 yeah. interesting the way it's it's expressed it's that it, we just kind of don't it's hard for us to get our head around that do we know what ultimately happened to Nineveh after this narrative yeah I mean um things go on they get destroyed 
um, later on and uh, it all it all goes south for them but later <laughs> okay but, yeah. i mean they're around they're around for they're around for a while i mean they were a world power what were the dates here um for 300 years from 900 to 607 okay and uh so later on they're conquered by by um, babylon and things like that okay and absorbed okay, and it's all it's all a bit fluid so yeah it doesn't go on forever that's good to keep in mind. Just, I guess, not since we're talking about historical context, look at the past, talk about the, the future as well, kind of see how it ended up. Yep. Yep. Yeah, good, good. Um, so let's uh, talk about verse five as well. This kind of ties into what we were just talking about. Um, verse five emphasizes that the uh, Ninevites fasted as part of their uh, repentance, right? Right. And um, so the church fathers picked up on this idea and a lot of them were emphasizing the importance of fasting and kind of demonstrating to God their, their repentance. And so a lot of them, you know, tried to draw these same sort of applications to our new Testament life as well. And the, the role of fasting and demonstrating our own um, uh, contrition. Right. And, And so it's, it's interesting because, we, we talked about, you know, whether or not this was just kind of t- turning away from their old, uh, you know, bad deeds and um, stop doing the evil things that they had been doing or whether or not it's a true faith. And the way that some of the church fathers talk, they do kind of make it sound like they almost merited Christ's favor through their fasting. And we, we know this is, you know, a, a kind of language that does appear in some of the church fathers, right, where they have a tendency sometimes of tying these acts of penance, we'll say, or these outward signs of contrition with uh, the repentance itself. And so anyway, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, whether or not this was like an overemphasis, you think, in the church fathers. How much did the fasting itself have to do with uh, ultimately what happened in sealing their destiny? Well, verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the grace of them to leave to them. So the actions came after the faith. Yeah. Right. And yeah. fasting, you know, even thousands of years ago was done, you know, David fasted when his son was sick, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a way to show God that I'm not concerned about myself or my well being. I'm concerned about what you want and what you want for me and those around me. Right. So it's, 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 I mean, it's self deprecation in a way. It's showing God that you're thinking about him, not about filling your belly. Right. So, but here, I think we were about to say it, it's a, it's an outgrowth of their faith and, and didn't bring about any blessing or anything. Simply, right. Yeah. It, it's just what happened. They were so doggone sorry. Mm-hmm. And then they believed God and then they, they wanted to show that to God in a tangible way. Right. And this is such a helpful Lutheran distinction for a lot of different aspects of life right it's not that our good works are somehow meriting christ's favor in any way but rather it is um when we you know are regenerated in faith uh these good works become just kind of like the natural outgrowth of that faith and we would say the same thing of the ninevites here as well right the same holy spirit who called them to repent motivated them to to fast and to show that repentance in an outward way yeah 
And that's <clears throat> that's healthy to show. It's not bad to show God that you're you're really repentant or thankful. Of course, right. It's not bad. Just don't get into the idea of, well, God, I'm going to do this for you, therefore forgive me, or I'm going to do this for you, therefore help me. Right. Again, that transactional stuff. This is an outgrowth of their faith and their regenerate spirit. Right, right. That's a good distinction. All right, uh, let's maybe jump down to verse 9. Now, this is a big topic, and I know one we can't fully deal with tonight. But this is one instance in the Old Testament where um, people might say that God appears to have changed his mind, right? It says that, uh, you know, the king says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so some people are going to look at this and say, okay, this appears to be a clear instance of God changing his mind or at least changing his course of action in regard or in response uh, to some human behavior. How do we as, as Christians, how ought we think about these things in light of our traditional understandings that God, God doesn't change and he, he doesn't change his mind? No, he, he doesn't. We talk about his immutability. Fancy way of saying he doesn't change. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. But so what's going on here? Was Jonah's proclamation simply, you know, as we get it, um, repent or, or was it um, he called, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he's not holding out a promise, is he? Mm-hmm, right. He's simply telling them things are in bad shape. But from God's perspective, if God holds out options to us, if we repent and turn to Jesus, then we don't suffer his wrath. Mm-hmm. Does that mean God changed his mind? Or had God put before the human race <laughs> these two different paths? Right. Like he put before Adam and Eve, um, you know, don't, don't do that. Right. Don't eat that. Right. And for us, we have, we have two paths before us, as it were. One leads to destruction. One leads to eternal life. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to look at it that if we repent, then yes, God relents and doesn't punish us, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean he changed. Right. We changed. Right. Right. And we don't want this to sound like we're implying any sort of like decision theology or um, synergism, right? No, because we talk about options, right? Right. But, but they are. Yeah. And, and, and we can talk about making the right decision for Jesus, as long as we understand that we can't do that without (laughs) the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. So there are options. There were now. See, Adam and Eve. It was possible for them to not sin, mm-hmm. and it was possible for them to sin. Right. For us, it's it's the only possibility for us is to sin, mm-hmm. and God in His mercy calls us to faith. But there are these two different, you know, narrow the path that leads to eternal life, mm-hmm. but broads the path that leads to destruction. That God deals with us in such a way that we can understand and calls us to himself through these promises. Right. 
promises of judgment or promise of forgiveness. Right. So God's not changing, but he's dealing with us mutable people who do change in a way that we can relate. We can relate to this idea. Oh, God, if I do this, then God isn't going to send me out of his presence forever. Right. So God relented of punishing me. Right. Because I came to faith. Yeah. Now, that's a very safe way to look at this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I think it's okay to talk about, you know, God makes promises. And if you read even through the Ten Commandments, there's promises of blessings and things like that. There, It doesn't yeah. mean that God changes his mind, but he informs us of the consequences of our actions. Right. Whether and, the wrong actions or the right actions. Right. And this is a question we, we dealt with at one point. This was several months ago. We had an episode on prayer. And whether or not prayer changes God's mind, right? And so is a similar question um, to the one we're dealing with here, where God seems to respond to a human action and his actions, what God chooses to do is in response to something that humans do. And um, I think we said last time that this doesn't necessarily entail, or it does not entail, a change of God's mind. Obviously, God knew the Ninevites were going to repent before they did it, right? There there are some Christians out there who believe that God only has knowledge of like probabilities. Like he knew that the Ninevites might repent and he knew they might not. And he could kind of see like what the, the probabilities were, but he didn't, you know, actually definitively know what the future holds. Oh. I think that view is called, called open theism, right? Well, no, it, it's called... God is an odds maker. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the open That's theism it. idea that God's going to change depending on on what we do or don't do. No, but his actions towards us correspond to what we do or don't do. Right, ex- exactly, right. And so what we had said in the last episode about prayer, I think, was that God might do something on account of a prayer that he might not have done had that prayer not been prayed. But that doesn't mean he changed his mind. He would have known from eternity that that prayer right. would have been prayed, and then acted accordingly. Right? Yeah. Even so, King, yeah. Go ahead. And so that would have been true with the, the Ninevites as well. It's not that he didn't know that they were going to repent, and God, in some sense, still acted um, in a way that took that repentance into account. But that doesn't somehow entail any sort of change in God's mind. He just acted in response to, you know, their actions, yeah. right? Yeah, even David, when his son was dying, fasted and prayed that God might change his mind. Mm-hmm. And in that case, he didn't. Right. Which is interesting. So, uh, you know, we're, we're too small to understand all those workings in God's mind. But mm-hmm. best mm-hmm. not to limit our, to limit God. Or to think that somehow he's that we can manipulate him, right? Or he he is the one who does not change, right? But right. the one thing to keep in mind in the midst of all that is that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That doesn't change. Mm-hmm. That's unchangeable. The fact that he promised to send his son into this world to be our brother and savior, that doesn't change, right? God makes decisions and acts on our behalf, which is the beauty and benefit, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. I think we've just about run our time out. 
any uh, concluding remarks before we wrap up tonight? Simply the beauty of the Jonah account is God reaching out to a non-Jewish group of people. So his reaching out to them could have possibly delayed the attack on the Northern Kingdom by the Assyrians Mm -hmm. because they repented of their evil ways. So it might have bumped that down the timeline by 10, 20, 30 years and and spared some of his Northern Kingdom people that that problem. Uh, The other thought here is that... um, he, he wanted his people to know that he cared for other nations as well. Right. He was concerned about them. Uh, interestingly enough, um, Jonah and Jesus lived in the same region. Mm. Where Jonah was from was near Nazareth. Mm. So there's that that kind of link. And Joppa, where, where Jonah embarked on the ship, was the same place where Peter was told and given the commission uh, to receive men of other nations. Hmm. There's another epiphany type link there, uh, place locations. And this kind of cool, it, 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 the significance, uh, it just helps us, you know, kind of link some of these places and things together that, uh, you know, 800 years after Jonah, someone else is there also being told to go to Gentiles. Yeah. It's kind of neat. It right? is. Yeah. And yeah, shows the yeah. consistency of God's love for all people. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Good. Do you have a prayer to close us off this evening, Will? I do. We'll use the collect that is traditionally prayed on the commemoration of Jonah, which is in our calendar, September 22nd, but we're going to pray it tonight. Okay. Thank you. Lord God, Heavenly Father, through the prophet Jonah, you continued the prophetic pattern of teaching your people the true faith and demonstrating through miracles your presence in creation to heal it of its brokenness. Grant that your church may see in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the final end times prophet, whose teaching and miracles continue in your church through the healing medicine of the gospel and sacraments. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.